we're getting ready to have a live session. It's Billy Holiday. Billy Holiday. So I don't play jazz. I'm not a swinger. My good friend Jason Crane. Now it's jazz. Now it's jazz. Now it's now it's now it's jazz. Welcome to the Jazz Session. I'm Jason Crane. The Jazz Session is a jazz interview podcast. It's more than just music. It's the lives and stories of the people who play, write about, and love jazz. It's also more than a podcast. When you visit the show's website at thejazzsession.com, you'll find interviews, live jazz news, and links to other jazz sites. The site also features a link to Bloggers for a Cure a collective effort by several music bloggers to raise money for cystic fibrosis research. For the month of May, you can donate to the cause and be entered to win great prizes, including CD boxed sets, DVDs, autographed and limited edition CDs, and more. Just follow the Bloggers for a Cure link at thejazzsession.com, and thanks in advance for helping out. On this week's show, my guest is saxophonist and composer Christine Jensen. The Juno Award-winning Jensen has released three albums, the most recent of which is Look Left. From it, here's a tune called Capers Papers. My guest is Christine Jensen, the saxophonist and composer, has a new album out, her third for Effendi Records. It's called Look Left. And Christine Jensen, welcome to the Jazz Session. Thanks for having me. It's my pleasure. This is a a really fantastic album I've been really enjoying, and uh, I want to just dig right into the content and start off with uh, a line from the liner notes that refers to the title track. And it says, uh, Look Left developed into a political theme representing my opposition to the invasion of Iraq by Bush and Blair. And Look Left is an instrumental tune. And I just want to ask a little bit about how how do you feel jazz musicians are able to communicate political protests if they don't have the benefit of lyrics? I guess specifically with that one, it really was a bit of emotion that hit me at the time because I was living in Paris. I had a six-month residency there right in the heart of Paris. And I was traveling a bit to London as well, and it was that summer of 2002, so, you know, post-9-11, uh, 
lot of heated discussion and debate and and uh, marches going on. A lot of people in France and in England were, you know, uprising against the choices their governments might make going into uh, the impending Iraq invasion. So I just kind of got a bit of an Eastern theme with this kind of melancholy, um, I kind of think of it a bit as a Chopin-esque baseline, just just hovering around the key of F-sharp, which is kind of a difficult key (laughs) to work in. So it just did this kind of haunting little theme. I kind of think of flutes and stuff, actually, when I like marching in the distance kind of feeling. think also on the recording the band gets into it we're all big fans of Wayne Shorter's new band and kind of tried to go for a group uh kind of group improvisation in it within that it's a bit long (laughs) you mentioned that uh you were in Paris because you got a grant and you got a grant from the Council of Arts and Letters of Quebec, right? Yes. Which whose name is actually in French, but I'm I'm not going to Yeah, yeah. <laughs> attempt to destroy the French language by reciting all the various names that are in French in the course of this interview. So, yeah, it always takes a little bit longer. <laughs> yeah. Particularly when I'll be speaking French, it'll take a lot longer. The first half hour will be me trying to say all the names. But talk a little bit about uh, that residency and what getting a chance to spend 6 months in a completely different environment uh, did for compo- your composing. I know that the the result of that is a lot of what we're hearing on this record. How was it different to be in a studio overlooking the Seine as opposed to in Montreal? Oh, I think it, it was just um, to be in the area that that place is. And a lot of jazz musicians have actually lived there in the past through their governments supporting them going over there. It's a big residency. And uh, you just get this real feeling of uh, of what it was maybe like the turn of the century in France when all these artists were there. And they were creating the new source of what was to come of art in the turn of that century. But then to be there a hundred years later or more, to be sitting there and everything is still as stunning as ever. Uh, I think visually it's just one of the most vibrant, beautiful cities to get inspiration from, just walking around. So that was a great thing. And I, I had a choice of really trying to just play and meet a lot of people or to to kind of get a little more retrospective. I think I'd gone through a lot of playing the year before, so I, I tend to go in waves of I'm either playing or writing. So this was a real great experience to be writing in, and then I'd have people over to play my music in that same place. 
what was the the point of the grant just to kind of give you a chance to get away and and do what you wanted for six months without financial pressure is that yeah i mean it's it's a great gift from the government here they have a few of these all over europe and also one in new york that a lot of quebec musicians use i think i was very spur of the moment in applying for that studio and it's really hard to get because it's multidisciplined. so a lot of great writers and Artists are going up against me when they do the juries. And uh, I was just really fortunate to have put a project forward that they thought would benefit my future, and it sure did because I wrote the most I've ever written in a short amount of time by being there. You mentioned how vibrant the district was, and I think my favorite piece on this new record is Promenade, which if I'm reading the liner notes correctly is one of the pieces most directly inspired by the area in which you were living, is that right? Yeah, well, when I arrived, I mean, this was the other thing. I had I had come off a tour, I think, of Canada, which when you do a tour of Canada, it's, we're, we're very into latitude, not longitude here. And uh, I'd spent quite a bit of time uh, running around doing some projects, uh, some larger ensemble projects, and I, I actually arrived in Paris quite exhausted from the previous few months of work. And I got there, and I <laughs> this woman said, "Oh, you know, Par- uh, what's it called? The Plage de la Seine is going on, which is like they dumped all this sand on the main thoroughfare running along the Seine, and no traffic goes on it. It's all pedestrians, and they put beach towels and chairs and sand, and they have volleyball. They have all these sports going on, <clears throat> and you just—it was literally outside my door, so I hadn't." I hadn't experienced Paris in the summer before, so I just landed. <laughs> this building's right on the edge of this, and I was like, what is going on down there? And it was just this huge, extravagant party for the public along the, the Seine, and so that was my promenade thing. I was I was just like, this is... And also just, I think I walked, I don't know, for a couple of weeks, I was just walking miles and miles every day because... There was so much to take in that way. In terms of uh, geographic inspiration for this record, it, it it can't get too much more varied than it does. It, it goes from <laughs> this area of Paris to uh, an area that I'm sure has inspired a lot of great jazz, uh, Fargo, North Dakota, which uh, oh, yeah. one, of the, one of the jazz capitals. That was capitals. my trippy one. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> the jazz capital of northern North Dakota. Yeah, right. Talk I've a never bit about that been one. there. <laughs> Actually, that, that's a bit of a... I can't remember if I wrote about it in there. I had at the time the corrections had come out by Jonathan Franzen, and he kind of describes in this book, which 
isn't it is fiction, but I think it also comes from his Midwest experience growing up. And he describes a cocktail party where his his family, you know, they kind of kept up appearances all the time, going to these sort of upscale events. And he, he lives in New York, and he's writing about all this stuff. And he thought, well, their idea of upper, <laughs> or, or not upper, but the upper middle class, and and I just kind of combine that with thinking of Upper Manhattan or the upper sorry the Upper East Side or. Upper in Vancouver, there's a place called Upper Lonsdale, and all these upper kind of places where it's a little more upscale. So I just kind of imagined in Fargo, North Dakota, and with the the sort of idea of that piece, it, it stems, I think, a lot from listening to Dewey Redman and Pat Messini sessions from the 70s or sure. early early 80s, I believe. I can't remember, but uh, that kind of vibe of this sort of Midwest combination of those two players. So it, it just was this whole fantasy. I, I mean, I sometimes think I'm just trying to create a very fictional piece of music in front of me, inspired by the music I listen to, as well as literature and all sorts of uh, arts that uh, in, influence my writing. further west, we get closer to uh, your place of origin and a tune called Cedar. Talk a little bit about that and its inspiration. Um, that Oh, that one, that's a work in progress. I j- actually just got to add on to that recently, but um, that, we grew up in a place, my sister Ingrid, who's a wonderful trumpet player in New York, we grew up in Cedar, which was this little tiny farm area south of the sort of mid-sized mill town by the name of Nanaimo that we grew up, grew up in. And uh, it, it was cedar for a reason because those trees were everywhere. And they are just immense trees uh, in the West Coast rainforest. And I used to, we had a whole um, park next to us that I would, that was kind of my fantasy land. I'd just jump, <laughs> jump across the creek and go into this dense forest that was just right in front of us and think about, and try to climb these trees, which were really hard to climb. And it was a very dark forest, but if you can get up high enough, you start to see some light at the top. So you can hear this sort of ascending, sort of some contrast ascending and descending lines that I'm trying to get up higher and higher. And then um, on top of that, with that piece, I, I was in a pretty melancholy state when I wrote it, I think. Being that far from home around Christmas, I, I really had wanted to go home that Christmas. So I wrote a few things that were a little like, oh, I wish I was home. <laughs> this is one of them. Thank you. 
we should point out that the home you're referring to is on Vancouver Island, right? Yeah. That's, that's what we're talking about, Absolutely. which is the extreme western part yeah. of Canada. Um, exactly. And I was also born just north of Vancouver, which is a very similar environment called Seashelf, and they even had more of those huge trees, which the family would cut down for their purposes <laughs> as loggers. <laughs> so, that I mean, that's just the tree that is very influential in my life. Uh, speaking of influences in your life, will you tell us about your mom and the role that she played in your musical upbringing? I have two older sisters, and my I mean, my mother, that, that was her outlet for, she was a school teacher by day, yet also a music teacher, and she taught private piano lessons to kids, and she was a, very involved in musical theater. Um, all of that, even going back to my grandmother, she kind of had the same uh, background, they had music around them all the time, and it was always live music, not always, but most of the time. And my mother had a, a small record collection, but really quite tasteful. So we were listening to everything from Chopin to Oscar Peterson, a lot of piano trio, and then a lot of uh, sort of dance band stuff like Tommy Dorsey and some older older singer stuff as well. So she she always was turning our ears something different than most, I think, most kids around us were growing up with. We had quite the collection of music that she just kept laying on us all the time. We'd try to play, oh, Mom, listen to this. She wouldn't listen to pop music very much. It, it was pretty hard to convince her that there, that was anything as good as what she'd been listening to <laughs> when she had a point <laughs> in the 80s. So uh, she did, I mean, she was just a wonderful, positive force in our lives in terms of, uh, and she was also really great at making us active in, in music. She would sign us up for every, you know, seminar and course that she could get us into because she knew we loved it and it kept us occupied in a really positive mental state. So it wasn't a, it sounds like it wasn't a chore for you, the kind of slog, no, slogging I, through practicing. and. I mean, I started on piano and <laughs> it's funny because I think I've been talking to a few other people about it, and Maria Schneider's had some similar things where, and another friend of ours, Maggie Olin, who is a great pianist in Sweden, we've all, the three of us have all had this experience of sitting at the piano and just kind of starting doing exercises or being told to play certain things in our piano lessons, and then we would all escape and try to make up our own <laughs> sort of variation on it, and then it would just lead into something else, and my mother was wonderful at, at just letting us try to figure out our creativity levels. <laughs> and a jazz musician is born, right? <laughs> I guess. Well, that and the combination of, of jazz teachers that played jazz in our, in our high school growing up, that was a huge thing. So how big, it's Nanaimo that we're talking about when you're in high school? That's yeah, the town? that's also where Diana Krall went to school. And how and, big a place? And she was an influence, too, because she... She was one of the first to really get into the, the jazz side of it. But the, the town itself is 50,000, or was at the time. Maybe it's a bit bigger now. And there was four or five junior high schools feeding into one big high school. So we, this one band teacher was very fortunate. He had all these other guys training kids at a pretty high level, and then they'd get into their last two grades. And we had a lot of big bands, a lot of, West Coast influenced big band stuff going on. Do you have a copy of the record in front of you now? Mm, yes, I do. I was wondering if you'd 
read, there's a, a really beautiful uh, quote from Plato that hung, oh, yeah. hung on the wall uh, above your mom's piano, and it it's just it's such a wonderful thing. I thought maybe you could read it for us. Sure. I mean, it, it's funny because it was always in front of a, of me, and I never really read it until after she passed away. <laughs> it was always like, oh yeah, there's something on the wall. It's always been there, but it was. It's a really great quote. I sat down and just started crying over it one day. So it goes, music is a moral law. It gives soul to the universe, wings to the mind, flight to the imagination, a charm to sadness, gaiety and life to everything. It is the essence of order and lends to all that is good, just, and beautiful. That's the quote. Not a bad way to live. No, and that, well, exactly. Look what my mother had in front of her all the time, and took us a while to notice it, but it rings true. How did you make the leap, and when did you, from piano to the saxophone? Well, that, that's when we started, I think, in grade six and seven to, to join band programs, and my two older sisters, one played trumpet, one played trombone, and I think they always told me, it's, you know, it's back in my memory that it would come up to the discussion of what instrument is Christine going to play, and Ingrid would say, well, I play the trumpet and John, Janet plays the trombone, so I, that's to fill out our band, we need Chrissy on the saxophone. <laughs> <laughs> and I used to play a lot of recorder, and my one of my teachers should give me the whole recorder family to take home in the summer, and and that was just a crazy experience right there. It, it just sort of led very easily to the saxophone. And what's the age difference between you and your sisters? Um, I'm the youngest, so I'm four and a half years younger than Ingrid. And then my older sister, Janet, she gradually uh, left music, and now she lives in Mexico (laughs) in the sun selling real estate. But she played trombone, and she was a few years older than Ingrid. So they uh, they were already moving, kind of. They had moved through the music programs as you were coming. Yeah, it's a pretty large. Uh, distance in age when you're younger. I couldn't get on the same stage with Ingrid until I was in my early 20s because she was that much older, and I was always going between piano and saxophone. So eventually, once I finished my degree at McGill University, I, I was like, okay, saxophone is it. It's where I have maybe more of a personal voice to offer. So even that far into university, you were still mm-hmm. playing both? Absolutely. My first few years, I was playing piano more than saxophone because they needed piano players and I could comp and play a bit of, you know, I could solo a bit, but I was my heart was not in the piano. I just find it's a technical beast to, uh, to conquer, but there's a lot of, at the same time, I think in the sort of positive thing I got out of it was that I did put some effort into it and that's helped me in the long run in terms of composition to be able to just sit at the piano and play and get some ideas happening very fast. I have to say in, uh, I don't know, I think it's 300 or something interviews, you're the first person I've ever interviewed over the phone who was sitting at an instrument and proceeded to play it, which was quite quite (laughs) nice. I I was stunned when there was actually piano music momentarily coming over the phone. It was really, really, really nice. I I need to start suggesting that people do that more often. Well, the piano's like a home in front of me, really. It's, It's always... It's such an important tool for me. So uh, I'm going to betray my ignorance, and I'm not ashamed to do that. It was McGill in Quebec? Yeah, so, in Montreal, yeah. In Montreal. Okay, so you, you decided to basically travel as far from 
your home as you possibly could. What was the attraction of McGill? Was it the music program there? Yeah, at the time, um, I mean, again, we have all these choices in front of us. And when I finished high school, I think, well, first I went to college in Nanaimo, just like Ingrid did. We did a couple of years. Actually, both my sisters, we all went to Malaspina College first, which is now a university on the West Coast. And we did a two-year program, which is basically a, a great time for us to have sat and figured out a few things before moving to some bigger cities. We were definitely small-town kids, and it gave us that freedom to really get the instrument together a little bit. And through that time, I was actually playing a lot of piano again, a lot of jazz piano. And uh, I applied to McGill because I'd heard their big band with a singer named Denzel Sinclair. I don't know if you've heard of him. Yeah, I've interviewed him a couple times. Yeah, he became, we became pretty good friends. And um, I heard him, and I was just like, that's incredible. And then I heard John Stetch, too, in Trio. And I was like, I've never heard this, this level before in Canada. And this was at that time. It's changed a lot. This was like early 90s or late 80s. And uh, I thought, well, that sounds like a really good school to go to. And in Canada, it's, it's a pretty big school to get into. So, in fact, now a lot of Americans are going to it. It's become a pretty popular, sort of the Harvard of the North for people. So it was they had just started a jazz program, and now it's, it's doing a great, it's actually really a great program, and, and very intense with, with the classical program as well. You have to do quite a lot of traditional theory and counterpoint and any your training, which I, I have no problem with. So. so by the time you graduated from McGill in 1994, had you already decided that being a professional musician was the course you were going to follow? I think that was always in front of me. I just never I never I never ignored it or accepted it I was just uh I think it's just something that you you are in <laughs> I don't know how to describe it but I was always working this is how I made money this is how I worked I was playing solo piano in in hotels on the west coast and then I moved to Montreal and I as a saxophone player was playing everything from latin gigs to to jazz trio to pop gigs on piano or saxophone, so it just, it's always been in front of me. And so what was the next step after you left McGill? Um, actually, then I had some more doubts. I was like, <laughs> I mean, not, not doubts about being a musician, but about being a performing jazz artist. I mean, that, it, it was really hard for me to even say those words. I'm a jazz musician, or I'm a jazz artist. I was like, I am a student. I mean, I'm a student for life with this music, but... I think about five years, and Ingrid was really quite influential in in uh, giving me a lot of positive sort of guidance in in it. Like, hey, you should try doing this. You should try doing that. Next thing I knew, I was. I think I went down to New York. I had a few lessons with Kenny Warner, and uh, I was starting to get some grants from the Canada Council to do composition, which was pretty major because I didn't think I was a composer either. And she was playing a lot of my music, and she she was very supportive with it being accessible. She was like, you know, your music is accessible to people as well as as well as being, you know, new jazz sounds. You wrote the title track of her first record, right, Vernal? Right, that was out of 
my undergrad assignment in composition. And it won a Juno Award. Yeah, it was pretty exciting. I, I didn't think that song would go so far so fast. And I, again, we have. I was studying with a really wonderful composition teacher here named Jan Yarchik, who used to live in Boston. And uh, he was he was helping me, you know, sort of. There's a big step between just writing a tune and and making something good. And he was very good at guiding me through some some traps I was getting myself into compositionally. So it was uh, pretty amazing. <laughs> you know, she took this tune and it won. Yeah, it was put. On, it was the title track of her first CD. And a few other of my tunes got on there as well. And you released your own first album in 2000, also on mm-hmm. Effendi Records. Uh, what was that moment like, that stepping into the studio and knowing that it was going to come out with your name on the Oh, phone? it's such a process anyway. Um, I think the big thing for me was, before doing the album, having people, again, support me and saying, you know, you're ready. You have all this music. You need to do it yourself. And so since then, I uh, released two albums up to the present one. Will you, you talk about the folks who are on the new album, Look Left? Mm, yeah. That, this album, the previous two had um, more of sextet writing with Ingrid and my husband, Joel Miller, on saxophone, who's also just a phenomenal. He's, I mean, another great inspiration to me in writing because he, he's a wonderful composer and player, spurring me on. Um, so this one, I decided to make it a smaller group setting, a little different, and focus on myself a little more as a player. In fact, there's one composition on there by Joel, which he wrote with my group in mind because he really enjoys the drummers that I I work with a lot, and he does too at times. But uh, that there's Dave Restivo from Toronto on piano, and he currently works with Rob McConnell and does all sorts of new, innovative things out of that scene. And is around my age, we have a lot of the same influences musically, which is kind of interesting when you're on the road and you can talk about, you know, jazz in the 80s <laughs> and that topic of who we were listening to and who really influenced us. So that's interesting, as well as Fraser Hollins on the bass. And he also had is around my age, so it's kind of neat to be playing with these guys. And then we have Greg Ritchie, who's, 10 years younger, but kicking up a storm on the drums, and he lives in New York now. But they're all Canadians, and and also uh, Ken Bass on the guitar, who I use kind of more as a horn line player, as well as he, he also does a little bit of rhythm work on the guitar, but mainly he's sort of supporting my horn lines more. It's kind of replacing, I guess, the other two horns I used to have. And uh, so it's it's neat. It's a lot more intimate for me, especially with Dave. We have a great conversation together. What's coming up next for you or for you and the band? Um, lots of great things. We are playing at Dizzy's uh, the last Monday of May. Which May- is the club at Lincoln Center, right? Yes, May 28th, with Ingrid as our guest. So I'm really looking forward to that. And the Burlington jazz festival in vermont on june 5th montreal jazz festival july 6th and uh i think i have about 15 dates across canada mid-june to mid-july 
I want to ask you uh, just before we close about a saxophonist you had a chance to uh, become friends with when you were in Paris, and uh, there's a tune on here inspired by him, and uh, that's Lee Konitz. Can you talk mm. a little bit about Lee? Lee is the most beautiful person walking on earth. I, I've only spent a bit of time with him, but it's, this is a guy who he's like, wow, you sound great. And I'm like, get out of here. <laughs> you sound great, you know. And he, he listened to some recording I did, actually the first album I did, and he thought that Ingrid and I had a really uh, special sound together. And to me, that's a really deep compliment coming from a man who is all about sound. Hey, we would just talk on the phone and, and walk around Paris a bit together because he was spending quite a bit of time there working with Francois Tiberge on a project. And he was a friend of mine, so he hooked me up with Lee. And we just, it was great. It, I mean, he's, he's such an influence on how I play the saxophone. How so? I think the thing, I mean, one thing I admire about him is that he's, he's done all these recordings. And if you go through them all, the majority of them are based on certain standards, like a, a 12 standards or something, and then a bit more of stuff after that. But he's he's really an artist at at completely innovating himself each time he plays all the things you are or what is this thing called love, all these great standards alone together. And each time I hear him, I find his sound gets richer and richer through time and and more sort of more strong. He's already been strong from the beginning, but it's like he's constantly evolving on some basic forms. And I just, I think that's a huge figure in jazz to, that's been very kind of under the radar the whole time for that reason. The new album on Effendi Records is called Look Left. My guest is Christine Jensen. Christine, it's been a real pleasure talking to you. Thanks a lot for doing it. Thank you. That's A Tree Thing, inspired by Jimmy Jufrey and Lee Konitz from Christine Jensen's new album, Look Left. Until next time, you've been listening to The Jazz Session. I'm Jason Crane. Please visit the show's website at thejazzsession.com, where you'll find interviews, live jazz news, and links to other jazz sites. You'll also find a link to subscribe to the show. 
If you can, please subscribe via iTunes. It's completely free and guarantees that you'll always have the most recent show whenever you want it. Don't forget about the Bloggers for a Cure link, a collective effort by several music bloggers, including the Jazz Session, to raise money for cystic fibrosis research. By donating, you'll be entered to win great prizes, and it runs all through May. I also write interviews and reviews for AllAboutJazz.com, the world's largest jazz website. If you'd like to contact the Jazz Session, you can send an email to Jason at thejazzsession.com or call anytime 585-473-5304. You can also join the mailing list, which you'll find at thejazzsession.com. When you join, you'll get periodic updates about the guests who appear on this show, plus other news from the jazz world. The theme music for the show is by the Respect Sextet, online at respectsextet.com. Thanks also to Dave Rabel, who designed the Jazz Session's logo. Thank you very much for listening. Remember to support live jazz wherever you can, and come back next time for another conversation about jazz on the Jazz Session. Thank you for listening. Bye.